Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Chapter 12. Memseek 0500188986. My face was pushed down into cold earth. Mesa was beside me, her eyes pleading with me, begging me to do something. I raised my head, and the butt of a rifle crashed into my temple, leaving me dazed and seeing double. My arms were pulled behind me and secured with a loop of plastic. I watched as the same was done to her, thankfully less violently. She had been pushed down roughly, and the grit and rocks had left minor scrapes on her dirty face. Her hair was disheveled, and the fight had gone out of her. We were hauled to our feet and dragged in opposite directions. We watched one another until we were forced into the cargo hold of separate transport jets, and then she was gone. Her eyes screamed at me, asking for help, asking me to do something, anything, to fight for her. But I didn't. I was shoved into the hold and pushed forward until I fell into a seat. The door was thrown shut and I sat in the darkness with the others. Nobody said a word. The PRC barked at us in a language we couldn't understand, so they screamed louder, making their words even more indistinct. I had no idea what I was asked or what I was being told. It earned me two loose teeth, bruised cheeks, and a few bruised ribs that felt just short of broken. My seatmate received the same method of interrogation. The jet rumbled, vibrating my feet as it lifted off with a surging moment of weightlessness that made my stomach flop. I closed my eyes and tried to focus on something other than the burning pain that racked my body. Thinking about Mesa made everything ache worse. The cargo ship landed on a rooftop helipad, and we were escorted into the building and down a freight elevator to the ground floor. We were met by more guards and more questions. Some of us answered, some didn't. Those of us who did gave our names and denied any serial numbers or military service. An older, smaller man was removed from our group and severely beaten into unconsciousness. We were asked the same questions again. Later, we were taken to the showers and deloused. Our heads were shaved and we were given razors so that we could shave off all of our body hair under the supervision of an armed guard. Then our group was led, nude, to the prison commissary, where we were issued clothing. After dinner, we were allowed to go outside. I took in the view. The Golden Gate Bridge had collapsed into San Francisco Bay, which was a graveyard of ships and boats. Below all that were the bodies. The city was a distant, dying ember. Hell of a view, ain't it? A voice at my shoulder said. I shrugged. I was looking forward to an island vacation. He smiled, the kind that indicated he thought I was stupid. Or maybe I was the sort of stupid he favored. He stuck out a hand, and we shook. He was an older man, in his sixties maybe. Jamie. Jonah. Under the circumstances, I can't really say it's all that good to meet you. We talked for a while, mostly about nothing. Nice weather. Hell of a war. You hear any news? 
The attacks on D.C. and New York had fucked things up good, and our satellites were all out of commission after that thing in Taiwan. When we ran out of bullshit small talk, we took a casual walk, not saying anything, sizing up one another in the silence. What are you in for? Nothing. We laughed, figuring we were officially prisoners. Ever been here before? No, I said. Only ever saw it in the movies. The sunset's rays refracted through the dust over the bay, the dust of bridges destroyed, a city ruined, and lives lost. Hell of a view, Jamie said again. He lit a cigarette, shook another one loose from the pack, and offered it to me. We smoked while the sunlight died away. Then we drifted apart. A siren bleated, and a voice over the loudspeaker ordered everyone back inside. We went through another round of inspections as our retinas were scanned and compared against their database records, and those of us who were new were assigned what our guards euphemistically called housing. My cell was small, barely wider than me. I watched other people fill theirs and recognized that most of the cellmates had a familiarity with one another. I recognized a husband and wife from the mountains. Mesa was nowhere to be found. I walked down the corridor, but a guard stopped me and asked me where I was supposed to be. He nudged me back toward my cell. The door slid shut and locked. A short while later, the lights went out, throwing the corridor into perfect blackness. Sleep did not come easily, despite the quiet. I dozed in fits and starts, and when the lights came on in the morning, I rose slowly, ragged and unfit for the day. After morning roll call, the newbies were separated. I saw Mesa, finally. She was ahead of me by several people, and when I called to her, she ignored me. I called again, louder, and got smacked in the belly with a shock stick. The guard told me to shut up, and my stomach burned. A thick wad of bile stuck in my throat. The muscles in my abdomen kept twitching and wouldn't relax, forcing me to walk hunched over. The guards had us form a line outside an office. Grateful for the chance to relax a bit, I leaned against the wall, waiting for my stomach to settle down. One by one, people went into the office. Mesa was ahead of me, and I watched as she entered the room, stayed for a time, then came back out to resume her place in line. When my turn came, I passed by her and nodded. She ignored me. The room was barren, save for one beat-up desk at its center and two chairs. The one behind the desk was occupied by a slim, elderly Asian man, and the other in front of it was empty. He pointed to the empty chair, and I sat. He introduced himself as Shang Wei, Captain Song. A second officer standing beside the desk was Shiyang Yu, an officer cadet. Yu held a scanner to my eye and processed my identity. I gave him my name and he assigned it to the number on my clothing. I could have given him any name, really. The EMP blasts had ruined the data files and I was sure I wasn't on anybody's radar. No police record, no military service record. I was nobody and I could be anybody. I could have lied, but I didn't. I liked who I was. We have brought you here to ask you if you would renounce your American citizenship and swear oath to the Pacific Rim Coalition. No, I would not. Song rested the pad on the desktop, squaring it against the desk's edge. You are aware that the American government has dissolved, he asked. I am. I have not pledged any loyalty to the Northern Alliance or the Free States. I understand that you attack and kill several of my men. Your men have attacked and killed far more of mine than I have of yours. He shrugged, looking bored. This is war, it is true. But you have no country, and you fight for no one. Then you are a terrorist. 
Call me whatever you want. Where is a man to go when he has no country, no home? I don't know. I kind of like it here. Drab gray walls surrounded us. It's soothing. He smiled a big toothy grin, baring yellowed teeth with bits of food stuck between and to them, along with swollen, infected gums. The UN has demanded that any prisoners we take be treated in accordance to the rules of war. Even terrorists are to be regarded as equal to a soldier and given the same privileges, the same hospitalities. Super. Do not be glib. We are discussing your future. You're asking me to leave my home, to fuck off to Montana or Quebec. This is so. No, I'm staying here. This facility is set to close at the end of the year. We are setting up a camp for the displaced population under the supervision of the United Nations until such a time that we can determine what to do with you. After the government dissolved in surrender, most of the states were repatriated under the alliance. A few, Texas and much of the Bible Belt, held out and created their own coalitions. For those of us in California, the ones who stayed behind, we had no country and no citizenship. Although the Alliance had made it clear that we were welcome within their borders, the UN had argued forcefully that the PRC needed to establish a green zone for war refugees and political or military prisoners. Alcatraz was one of almost a dozen such zones spread across the state's nearly 164,000 square miles. The hope was that, eventually, tensions would ease to the point where the unclassified indigenous would be granted visas or permanent residency in California so that we would still be able to call the state home. Although PRC's public relations staffers never said it, their government's desire was to see anyone who was unwilling to swear fealty to them leave. Politically, it was going to be a long, rocky road, made worse by bickering, short-sighted politicians who lacked any clear resolutions or ideas to solve the problem. I saw families in the other cells. I want to see my daughter. Who is your daughter? I gave him her name. He picked up the data tablet again and searched for her. She stated she was here alone, that she has no family. She's my daughter. I see. He thought it over, then squared the pad against the desk. I will have her moved to your cell promptly. Is there anything else? No. A short while after returning to my cell, Mesa stomped in angrily. I was glad to see her, but when I tried to put my arms around her, she pushed away and ducked around me. She threw herself up on the top bunk. Are you all right? I asked. Did they hurt you? She said nothing. I'm glad to see you. You're such an asshole. Her words were broken, and she choked down a sob. When she finally faced me, tears were running down her face. I don't want to even fucking know you, and I don't want to make bullshit small talk with you. Just leave me the fuck alone. What is your problem? I shouted. Her anger was infectious, and my voice was getting deeper and louder, turning almost to a growl. And secondly, you don't talk to me like that. I'm your father. You're a fucking murderer, she said. You're a coward and a killer. I was standing too close, and she lashed out with a swift kick at my face. I dodged it, her small foot passing a hair's breadth from my nose. When I stepped forward, she scooted away on the mattress, pressing herself against the wall, and curled up. Don't you come near me, she said. I glared at her. She glared back. Her eyes were hard and too old for her child's face. Everybody had always said Mesa had inherited my eyes, and they were right. Familiar hate and fear rested in those eyes, and that was my fault. I wondered how the hell it had come to this. 
How had I screwed up so much to have ruined her so badly? After a long, stupid minute, I sank down to my own mattress. She cried, occasionally making long, dramatic sighs to let me know she was still pissed off. I thought about all the ways my life had gone wrong. I was getting pissed off with her, with myself, with everything. Rage boiled inside me. I needed to move, to escape. That's right, she called at my back. Run away, you coward. That's what you're good at. Just leave me here alone. I could feel the eyes burning into my back, that itchy crawl of my fellow inmates' gazes pressing upon me. Their eyes held concern and pity, but also anger and blame. They were questioning my capability as a parent, and I couldn't really fault them. I wasn't cut out for that shit. I couldn't deal with Mesa. I couldn't handle her. I barely understood her half the time. She was Celine's baby girl. Celine's had been the magic touch, the one that always stopped Mesa from crying, the one that had comforted her as a small child, that had told her everything was fine. They'd always had an easier time relating and talking with one another. Mesa and I, we never knew what to say. Fuck it. I needed fresh air and a walk. I took to the prison grounds again and walked the perimeter, as I had the day before. I spent a long time walking slowly, my hands stuffed in my pockets, trying not to think about anything while errant thoughts and recriminations warred. I loved my daughter, but sometimes she could be a real bitch who was impossible to handle. She got that from her mother. I missed Celine and wished she were there to deal with Mesa instead. Yo, Jonah. Jamie was about a yard ahead of me, sitting on the ground, resting against the fence. He patted the ground beside him. Papa Squad, he said. Girl problems, huh? A sly grin curled around the cigarette in his mouth. I shot him a questioning look. Word travels quick around here. Ain't no secrets, especially when I got a mouth like your girl there. My daughter, she's a handful. Yeah, well, she is a woman. You ever think it'd be different? You're a fool. He said it casually, with good humor, and I gave him a dry chuckle. That was just how Jamie was. His easygoing attitude made it difficult not to get sucked in by his charm. He asked me if I believed in God, and I started to question my assessment of him. The last thing I needed was a creepy evangelist trying to extol the virtues of some bullshit religion on me. No, I said, putting enough edge into it to let him know I wouldn't brook anything further. Why not, he asked. I looked at him, letting him know I wasn't in the mood. Didn't work. Come on, seriously, man, why not? Look, I'm not much of a believer myself. I'm just curious why other people believe or why they don't. It's a point of interest is all. Never saw any evidence he was real, and I always thought the Bible's just a book. He pointed the cigarette smoke at the port behind my ear. He seemed to mull over my words, then asked, You a dreamer? I nodded. He took a chip from his pocket and passed it to me. You ever see the snuffs? No, I said. How'd you get this? He looked at me as if I were a simpleton, but the expression passed quickly. I've made a few friends here and there. Got this one on the sly. What's it like? He shrugged. It's like becoming personally acquainted with death. What it feels like. Lets you know it's nothing to be afraid of, that it feels good. His eyes tracked off, lost in memory. I was suddenly uncomfortable with the route our talk had taken and was preparing to stand up and leave. Why do you think they're illegal? He asked, still staring off into the distance as if I weren't even there. 
It was my turn to look at him as if he were the simpleton. I shrugged, not sure where the conversation was going, not really wanting to get bogged down by a debate. I figured things would go easier if I let him say his piece and move on. Because it encourages murder? No, he said, shaking his head, a spark in his eye. He was playing with me. Because it answers the God question. He cracked a smile, warming to the discussion. The whole point of religion is that you get a reward in the end, right? Religion was created by men who understood life sucks, so they invented God, said he's watching you and keeping score, and if you play your cards right, you get to go to heaven. You get to leave behind all this shit and trade up for an afterlife of bliss and joy. And people buy into this shit. They kill and die for it. They believe it's so bad. He paused to take a hit off the cigarette and to make sure I was paying attention. I nodded and encouraged him along, curious despite myself. Then Dreamer comes along. People start to wonder. Maybe they can find the truth, see if God and heaven are real. That's why the snuffs are illegal. It raised too many questions, gave too many answers people didn't like. He held up the chip between us, showing it to me. Smoke from his cigarette curled up and away, and he took another drag. He dropped the chip in my hand and pointed at it. You got God right there in your hand. You play that fucker and feel good, and you just know. Every time you hit the end, that little deathly sweet spot and the chemical flood it triggers in your brain, that's your reward for this long, drawn-out shitstorm of a life. You get to go out with a quick high, the best high, and that's heaven. That's it, man. The end. I stared at the chip. A small square of metal barely the size of my pinky nail, it was almost translucent and shiny. So how did you find God? I asked him. I guess you could say my wife introduced me to him. He sat there, an elbow propped up against his knee while he smoked and stared off into the distance. He started to speak again, but instead closed his mouth around the cigarette and took a long drag. He held the smoke for a while before slowly releasing it. Finally, he said, she died in the bombings. We'd gone to the shelters they'd set up in the subways. You know the ones? I nodded, urging him onward. The subways were supposed to be safe, supposed to protect us from the aerial bombing campaigns. And it did. They had some military checkpoints at the entranceways, something defensible, I suppose. National Guard, local police, supposed to make us feel better about our odds of survival. PRC didn't have much compunction about targeting non-combatants, and they didn't give two shits about the UN crying foul over it. The UN was a bunch of toothless old women, though. PRC knew that much, and they knew the easiest way to win the war was to make it terrifying for all of us. Knew we'd cave when the going got rough. So they bombed the shit out of everything from above and sent in a unit on the ground, a small force that was able to do cleanup. Took our little National Guard protectors right out, quick and efficient. Then they tossed grenades down into our little hidey hole and left. My wife got caught in the blast. Shrapnel tore her up, took out some of her throat. She was dead before she really knew what was happening. I was a few feet over, but it was far enough away. He took a long drag off his smoke and slowly exhaled. You know that saying, right? Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Well, I was fucking this close. He held his thumb a scant inch apart from his index finger. I was close, but she was closer, and that was that.
but she was my wife, you know, my life. I couldn't leave her behind. Her soul, her heart, all those things that make her who she is. I couldn't do it. I did a backup. Later, I'd console myself with playbacks, trying to feel her love. I learned so much about her, about the way she thought, what she believed. I learned about how much she hoped, about what a dreamer she was. She believed in God. I kind of knew that she did, but then I learned how much she really believed. She was one of the faithful men, and she taught me. And then I got to the part where she died. That flash of light, that chemical rush. She was dead before she even knew it, but I swear a part of her did know. She knew, and she believed. So, I guess I believe. What you got in your hand there, it's a simple suicide, mind you, but it has value. He ground the cigarette on the gravel path and struggled to stand. He had to roll onto his knees, get one foot underneath, push up and get the other foot there, holding onto the chain-link fence for support as he hauled himself up. Bum knees, he said by way of explanation. Don't get old, man. I watched him walk away, then looked at the chip in my hand. Our belongings had been confiscated from the campsite and were being catalogued and stored in the commissary. We were welcome to gather whatever we wanted. Dreamer was considered to be a basic good, allowable under the prisoner of war provisions following a flurry of protests and petitions to the UN from the ACLU, Amnesty International, and the Occupy movements. Cybernetic enhancements were ruled to be a commodity no different from music, books, television, and computer access. They were, therefore, allowed to all prisoners in America and most other democracies. The PRC had been pressured to allow some measure of American rights to the POWs, and eventually they relented. It had become a joke that even if the U.S. Army lost, the lawyers would kill the PRC for sure. I pocketed the chip and went to the commissary. An hour later, I'd found the few belongings I cared about. My dreamer unit, a data pad, a chip of images of Celine and Mesa, some paper, and a digital pencil. Photographs from another era. I spent another hour rooting around for Mesa's stuff, bagging what I could. I found her backpack, but it felt light. I undid the zippers and found a stuffed penguin. Mr. Ziggles. I smiled and zipped up the pack. Slinging it over my shoulder, I made my way back to my cell. Mesa had cried herself to sleep, and I listened to her soft snores. I put her bag on the desk and let Mr. Ziggles have some air, then lay down. I dug out the chip, trying to decide whether or not I wanted to play it. Jamie had called it a reward, and I needed to be rewarded for something. I had that itching again, that crawling under my skin that made me long for an escape. I juggled the chip between my fingers, contemplating it. I hadn't experienced an actual snuff before. My knowledge of them was purely academic. Even in my art installation, the vagaries of a snuff chip were verboten, mostly so that I could stay on the right side of the law. Snuffs raised certain moral and ethical quandaries that I hadn't been ready to tackle. Various radical groups and lawyers eager to profit in cases argued that snuff chips were as legal a form of expression as gay pride marches and exhibitionism. However, the courts went unmoved. Legally, the court said, rape was rape and murder was murder. They were among the worst travesties in a broad spectrum of human frailties, and no one should profit, either financially or emotionally, from such violent transgressions. My art display had consisted of a wide range of human experiences. 
One woman had wanted to donate the memory of her rape, the emotional fallout, and recovery, but I declined. I understood her reasoning, but I was afraid that its inclusion would generate the wrong kind of attention and criticism. Most of the memories were donations or had been obtained from Memspace, Episodic, and other public domain sites. I understood the laws and the rulings against snuff, but a certain curiosity surrounded it, a notion of taboo, the promise of an experience unlike any other. I'd heard the arguments for and against. I was curious why Jamie had passed it along to me. He was a snake oil salesman, but his charisma was unmistakable, and it made him a likable sort. I inserted the chip, then the data spike. I listened to my daughter snore, and then I pushed play. The jolt shook me to my core and left me gasping for air. I fell, even though I was lying down and hadn't moved, and the sensations were so rich and compelling that euphoria failed to properly define the experience. In the end, I was shaken and still as vibrant colors washed over me, numbing me. I smiled. In the wake of my high, I understood the difference between addiction and need, and I hit play again and let the download rush through me. Over and over, until I passed out. When I woke, my pillow was soaked with saliva, and I was sleeping on my arm in such an uncomfortable and awkward position that when I moved the wrong way, the bone protested painfully and threatened dislocation. I figured out how to untangle myself and sat up. Mr. Ziggles was gone from the desk. When I stood, I saw him on the bunk above me. Mesa hugged him close, her eyes closed. She was at peace, finally. But the horrors I had subjected her to nagged at me again. It was dark out and the cell door was shut tight. I had a raging headache and I was hungry. I had no idea of the time. I paced the handful of steps between the bed and the desk from the toilet to the cell door. In an aisle not much longer than the length of the bed, I did push-ups and crunches until the muscles ached, I was soaked in sweat and unable to move, and my head throbbed in agony in time with each heartbeat. The snuff buzz was gone, replaced by a fog that made the edges of my mind fuzzy. I fell back onto the bed, wincing from the soreness in the muscles of my stomach and back, and tried to sleep again. I was restless and physically worn, but it took me a long time to fall asleep. Mesa had breakfast with me, but she was wary and silent. I tried to engage her in conversation, but she remained sullen. She poked at her plate of cold, thickly congealed scrambled eggs and took small bites of unbuttered toast, but ate very little. She said even less. Eventually, she decided she was finished and left without a word. I walked the grounds again, alone. It was quickly becoming my routine, and I found it comforting. Jamie was talking with a small group of men and we waved to each other. However, I made no effort to join them, and he made no effort to invite me. A few laps later, he peeled away from them and slowly walked up to me with a pronounced limp. His knees were bothering him, and even my bones were slightly achy in the chill. What do you think of the chip? he asked. What makes you think I played it? He grinned. You got that look in your eyes like they ain't all the way focused. You had a good night of dreaming, I can tell. I stopped and looked at him. I had to smile back. He reminded me of an overly eager kid begging for acceptance. It was good, I said. Amazing, really. You find God in there? I found something, sure. We walked for a bit, 
More of a shuffle, really, given how slow Jamie was moving that morning. I see why it's illegal, I said. I always got it from a moral perspective, but living it? I get why it has to be bottled up. Well, that didn't stop you from hitting it over and over, did it? No, I admitted. I played it a lot until I couldn't anymore. It was fierce. There's a lot more out there. The circumstances are worse, maybe, but the rush is better. The feeling of it all. When you get all these different emotions wrapped up in it, all those chemical bombs, that's where it's really at. The war debt? Sure, those are a fucking trip. You know, when you step on a landmine or have a bomb dropped on you, they say you don't feel a thing. It happens so fast, your brain doesn't know how to process it, and it sends the body into automatic shock mode first thing to prevent you from feeling it. Fact is, though, there's all those chemicals rushing around in your body, and the dreamer picks up on it, etches it into place. Now that, that is a fucking trip. He had a measure of awe, of reverence in his voice. It chilled me, but also drew me in and made me curious. I had already eaten from his poisoned apple. What was one more bite? You got any of those? I asked. I wondered how deep his private stash was, what sort of experiences and memories he had buried for personal consumption, and what was for sharing. I told myself the question was purely professional curiosity. That was what I had been curating, after all. All these experiences, all those random, powerful, vivid moments that made and shaped life. Those experiences were both unique and universal. He smiled and clapped his hand on my shoulder. Nah, he said, I don't. We took our walk slowly, the morning chill quickly turning to warmth. We found shelter in the shade and I looked around for Mesa, but she had a knack for disappearing completely when she wanted to. You get the sales pitch about immigrating to Canada yet? I nodded. Supposed to be, the UN is forcing Pacram to set up a refugee camp in LA, a few others spread across the old state boundaries. Truthfully, Canada or the NA Alliance or whatever the fuck they're calling it, it won't be much better. One refugee camp is pretty much all the same. Maybe if you got to an NA state, might be you can get Alliance citizenship. Stay at the Pacram camp, probably you won't. It's gonna be fucking Somalia around here before you know it. I'm staying, I said. He looked me in the eye, maybe gauging my seriousness. This is my home, I said. My daughter and I, we're staying put. Thinking about it myself, he said. I've always been a California boy. He shifted, trying to work his butt into a more comfortable rut on the ground. His gaze traveled across a clump of guards taking a smoke break, talking animatedly and laughing. Our new overlords, Jamie said. New boss, same as the old boss only a little bit louder and a little bit worse. We laughed, but without the good humor to bring it to life. What do you think about all this? He asked me. I told him about my brief turn with a so-called militia. He asked if I'd ever killed any PRC, and I told him that I had. When he asked me if I'd been comfortable with it, I said I was. I asked him about the burn, and he gave me a story about an accident with hot oil when he had been a cook before the war. He said he had fallen in with a militia too. Then he took a small square of fabric from his pocket and unfolded it. The edges were frayed from where it had been torn loose and burnt, but the few stars and stripes that remained were easy to recognize. You still believe in this? He asked me. I said I did. He said he wasn't sure if he did anymore or not, but he wanted to. I might go to that Echo Park camp, he said. 
I hear it's supposed to be pretty relaxed, at least as far as refugee camps go. I might have a job or two you can help with if you're willing. I'll think about it, I said. I didn't ask what kind of jobs, and he didn't offer any details. He refolded the small square of flag and pocketed it. He seemed grateful when I helped him to his feet. He dug around in his pocket again and pulled loose another chip. He handed it to me before we went our separate ways. I spent the rest of the day in my cell, alone and high on DMT, playing through my small collection of snuff chips. I got jacked up on the pain of others and high off the misery and death of strangers. It felt good. Chapter 13 In the morning, Alice and I drank coffee and ate bagels. It had been a long time since I'd had a bagel, even longer since it had felt satisfying. The coffee was rich, black, and strong, not at all similar to what we were given at Echo Camp. Alice was talking, but I was tuned out. I was lost in my own thoughts, staring into the liquid pitch in my cup. She was surprised, but not offended, when I finally interrupted her. I need the memory chips from the men we killed at the restaurant. I was troubled by her lack of communication with her PRC contact. Call him, I said. She was a woman not used to taking orders, but she nodded. The ground we stood on was constantly shifting beneath me, and I thought she was still more than a bit angry at me. That was fine, though. I was still upset with her over hiding the details of the Echo Park attack from me and angry at her conflicting loyalties. She left half of her food uneaten and went into a different room. I finished mine and poured a second cup of coffee. She was gone for a long time before water started running from the shower. She came out twenty minutes later, dressed and with her hair wrapped in a damp towel. PRC were able to recover the bodies, she said. My contact will have access to the bodies this morning, after their autopsy. He can obtain a copy for us, but the originals would be too risky and would compromise him. I gave it a moment's thought, then shrugged. That's fine as long as the data is unaltered. Maybe we can find out where Jamie is. If those men were his. They were. The more I replayed events over in my head, the more certain I became. They were the same team that had carried out the attacks on the 101, Jamie's personal hit squad. Christ, she said. When will we have the chips? This evening, I think. He'll contact me to arrange a rendezvous. I ate another bagel, trying to arrange the pieces. Jamie must have realized I'd been abducted during my shift on the city reclamation crew. It didn't take much figuring out that Captain had been behind it or that I had been severely compromised. I knew about Jamie's operations and was, therefore, a liability. My role in the murder of the PRC Shang made me a powerful bargaining chip if Captain ever needed leverage. He had trolled my memories, which would have exposed Jamie and Alice's role in the affair. And if Captain could compromise me, odds were the PRC could dig up even more information. The big question was whether Jamie knew I was still alive and that Alice had bought my release from Kafton. The attack on her restaurant told me she was the primary target, and it was possible his hit squad hadn't known I was there prior to the attack. Jamie was cleaning the house. I'm taking the car, I said. I have a few errands to run and I need to know where today's checkpoints are. Well, I'm coming with you, she said. No, you're staying here where it's safe. If my contact calls... Then you'll call me and tell me where to meet him and I'll pick up the chips. But no arguments, I said, cutting her off again. Jamie obviously thinks we're a danger to him. If we're together, it's easier for both of us to be killed. 
If we're separated, he has to devote twice the amount of energy toward eliminating us. We stand a better chance of evading him if we don't have to worry about watching each other's backs. It's too risky. I don't like it. I don't care, I said. You hired me to do this job, and this is how it's going to be. She relented, perhaps surprised by my newfound authority. We agreed on a specific comnet frequency and promised to stay in touch. If the checkpoints changed or if she heard from her PRC source, she would contact me immediately with the details. I drove down from the hills and took a circuitous route to my destination, checking for tails. I avoided the checkpoints, but found myself behind roving military convoys twice. They paid me no attention, but they moved slowly and traffic quickly grew congested. Although I was used to the sight, the incongruity of Chinese tanks sitting in the middle of Ventura Boulevard still struck me and filled me with unease. The people who walked around it gave it a wide berth. The scene reminded me of news footage of riots in Egypt, Libya, and Iraq. I took Ventura to White Oak. I had an odd sense of a misplaced anxiety. After so long away, I was going back home, and with that decision came a streak of trepidation over what I might find, or what might be waiting for me. My hands were sweaty against the leather of the steering wheel when I pulled into an empty driveway. The front yard was a riot of weeds and dried dirt patches. The house was caked in grime, and wooden boards had been nailed over broken windows. The front door was a thin piece of plywood, where the words dead inside were spray-painted in red. The markings had become a common sight over the months, and I paid it little attention. Squatters sometimes tagged houses with that message in an effort to keep the authorities or other squatters away. On my last visit here, I had sprayed that message in hopes of deterring the homeless from seeking shelter in my house. The wooden steps leading up the country porch were warped and rotted, and they protested loudly under my weight. I had been to the house twice since Celine's death. The first time, I'd sat on the porch and cried, waiting for Mesa. She came home confused and frightened. Her steps slowed as she realized I was alone. She saw me crying, and it may have been the first time she'd ever seen tears line my face. Between sobs, I told her that her mother was dead. Although the inside of the house was dark, I could make out the lumps of figures sleeping on the floor. In the center of the living room, an old, rusted barrel cradled a dying fire inside. Dark streaks of soot from the curls of smoke lined the walls and ceiling. The room stank of excrement, cigarettes, liquor, and vomit. I caught a flash of movement and turned toward it. A man sitting on the floor was dressed in layers of rags and covered in filth. He squinted at me, but seemed disinterested. As his head swiveled away, I caught shiny flashes in his eyes and a small glint of metal from the port behind his ear. Vanity bionic upgrades from another life had become cybernetic nodes that were nothing more than a reminder of the way things had been. The work hadn't been cheap. He burped loudly and fell back to sleep, a bottle of amber liquid stoppered in his lap. A sledgehammer had been taken to the walls so that the vandals could steal the pipes and wiring. A TV that had been made useless by the EMP blast at the start of the war had been smashed to bits. The photos and their frames that we'd hung on the wall had long ago burned to ash. I made my way to the stairs and saw that the guardrail had been chopped away. More kindling for the fire. I was glad I'd made it back before the place burned down. I wanted to be angry with the squatters for what they had done to my home, but I was too detached and lost. I kept an eye on the bums. I wasn't afraid of them, but it never hurt to be cautious. The stairs creaked loudly under my weight. 
I tried not to make any more noise than I had to in order to avoid drawing any undue attention to myself. If they felt I was a threat, things could get nasty. The upper floor was a small loft with two bedrooms on opposite ends and a bathroom in the middle. The walls were torn up and ugly patchworks with the copper pipes were missing. One of the bedrooms had been Mesa's, but I had no need to go in there. I stuck my head through the doorway anyway and was surprised to see a child in there, lying atop a natty sleeping bag on the floor. The boy was small and grimy. His long hair was thick with grease and sticking up in clumps at odd angles. He had one large blue eye. Where his left eye should have been, he had only an ugly, jumbled mass of scar tissue. That side of his face was webbed with broken flesh over sunken bone. Although he was dressed in layers, he was clearly emaciated, and the left side of his body was deflated from where he had lost his arm and leg. His right leg was bent at the knee before him, his right elbow resting on his knee. He regarded me with his single eye, then mouthed, hello. The scar tissue from his face continued down his neck and across his throat before disappearing beneath the collars of his shirts. I returned his greeting with a simple nod. When I turned my back on him, he resigned himself to loneliness or boredom with a noisy huff. I treaded lightly down the hall to our old bedroom. The mattress we had slept on was shredded and stained with black mold. Its stuffing had probably been used to line clothes or sleeping bags or burned for warmth along with the dresser and chest of drawers. The walls and carpet were moldy and the room smelled rank. Somebody had shit in the corner, but it was old and dry. I pulled open the closet door, half expecting to find a dead body based on the stink, but I was relieved to find it empty and free of any horrors. The attic entrance was closed. That didn't mean much, really, but it gave me hope. I yanked on the pull cord and caught the ladder as it slid down toward me. The climb up was short, but my eyes had to adjust to the darkness. The squatters hadn't had reason to come up this high, and the rafters were still jammed with our boxes and the detritus of life. It took me a minute to spot the gray duffel bag I had come for. I hauled it over and down the steps, then knelt on the floor, everything else forgotten. The bag was heavy. Inside were a couple pistols, boxes of ammunition, a folding bench-made knife, and twenty-some mem chips. Most of the chips were copies of what I'd had in my possession at Echo Park, minus the Shang's murder. I had maybe enough to unload on the black market to raise money for passage north or east to the seasteaders. Other chips sat at the bottom of the bag, though, ones that were far more meaningful to me. In this bag was my entire life. My wedding, the first time Celine and I had made love, the birth of our daughter and her first day of school. Sending her off to kindergarten had been painful. For the first time in her life, we had left her surrounded by strangers, and she had been afraid. She hadn't wanted to be separated from her mother or me, even though the teacher had seemed pleasant and smiled at her, holding out her hands for Mesa to take. Instead, Mesa had screamed and hugged my leg, tears streaming down her face as she begged us not to leave her alone. At the end of the day, she was sullen and vowed not to go back. The next morning, she put up no fight. By the third day, she was almost eager to go. I slung the bag over my shoulder and stood. I stepped out of the closet, and instinct took over. I smelled him before he was on top of me, and I easily sidestepped the punch he threw toward me. He was slow and drunk, but his words were oddly clear. They're doing it, he said. You Muslim? His fists were balled at his sides, and he was breathing heavily. He was fat and tired. 
He waited for my answer, bringing his hands up in front of his face. No, I said, I'm not Muslim. That's good, he said, seeming to relax. They're doing it. They're putting the thoughts out there, making people into them, into terrorists. It's them doing it. Okay, I said, not sure what else to say. I'm for Jesus. Them ones, though, they fucked up. Gonna blow up. Blow up for sure. But I got Jesus. That's good, that one. It is. Okay. Yup. You got Jesus. I noticed a glint from his hand. He had a knife up his sleeve. Yeah, sure, I said. Yup. That's good. Better to have Jesus in you than the other one. I nodded. Yeah, that's what I hear, man. You watch yourself. Watch out for the gooks and the Allah assholes. It's bad out there. Amen, brother. Amen to you, sir. Fucking amen. He stepped back out of the doorway and spread his arms wide, granting me passage in sage fashion. I walked past, but made no show of my nervousness. He nodded, I nodded back, and we were copacetic. What happened to the boy? I asked. The words escaped before I realized it. Them's was the kooks did that, not the ragheads. Rags got me, though, once upon a time, lost a fucking toe. Huh, I said. Yep, you go on now, get. I wasn't going to argue. This was not my house, not anymore. It was from a past life, a dead life. The house shrank and receded in the distance as I drove away. Then it disappeared from view, lost to me forever. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.